You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas from BleacherReport.com. And joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, in the past few days, you have offered to put almost everyone we know in an arm triangle choke from the half guard to see if you could choke them out. I just want to see if it works. Have you had any takers? Uh, I got my wife to do it, but she tapped out very quickly, I suspect, so that she could be done with the exercise. Oh, that, and she is a Sage Northcutt sympathizer, right? She's, She's a noted sh- Sage Northcutt sympathizer. I want it noted for the record that you, Chad Dundas, refused to get down here on this hardwood floor. Uh, I got let me put you in an arm triangle choke in your half guard. I'll let you have half guard, man. First of all, I've got strep throat. Oh, okay. Well, forget it then. Second of all, even if you did put me in a triangle, arm triangle choke from half guard, I'm not sure what it would accomplish, given that I am not out here trying to pass myself off as a professional fighter. Well, we would find out whether Chad Dundas prefers to tap or nap. That's something. That's not nothing. I can tell you without even having to do that about that I prefer to nap, but that has nothing to do with submission grappling. Okay. I would just prefer to take a nap. Fair enough. Let the scouting report reflect that about Chad Dundas. We got three rounds, as usual, this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, in fairness, Sage Northcutt has been frozen in carbonite since like 1984, so he missed all those years when the rest of us figured out what an arm triangle choke is. And in round number two, and lo, the Dark Lord Rothwell did smite the War Master, and his power grew to levels unseen in this land for a hundred generations. Still probably not good enough to get him the next title shot. And in round number three, Oh man, UFC 196 is now UFC Fight Night 82, you know what I'm saying? And uh, UFC Fight Night, or UFC 197 is now UFC 196, if that makes any... No, it doesn't. It doesn't make any goddamn sense at all. Oh man. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me? And are we going to do tips for the well-rounded fight fan? Yes, we this are. Where? All right, I'll figure out something to do. Yeah. Uh, but first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. Uh, breaking news, Ben, this week. Just as the co-main event podcast is coming on the air, we have uh, uh, an email on the topic from Tang Cow who writes, So Bendo is Bellator bound. Sorry, I don't have any witty retort for the rest of this email, but I just wanted to get it in so you guys will have a mailbag question about it. Just discuss it, please. Gracias. Wow, that's a uh, that's kind of a cheap way to get into the, the listener mail hall of fame. Here. You know, sometimes it's all about positioning. Johnny yeah. on the spot. You see... This is what happens when preparation meets opportunity. That's right. I appreciate, though, the admission that you really got nothing to say about it, but you know that we probably want to talk about it, because how rare is it that we get an opportunity to talk about breaking news that happens before the podcast? It almost never happens, and I guess for that, we have to thank Benson Henderson, who both acknowledged on his own website today and then later appeared on the Fortnite to say that he is... Leaving the UFC to sign with Bellator MMA, which I guess is not a surprise. It had been sort of percolating for a while, but 
uh, it was, I mean, it's, I, it's kind of, I don't want to say shocking, but it is kind of a surprise to see it actually go through. Like the idea that Benson Henderson would cross the aisle to Bellator was something that has been on the table for a long time to actually see it happen did in fact elicit me to just sort of say, Whoa, Oh, that happened. Yeah. You know, the more you think about this one, the more I think you can see that it really is the move that kind of makes sense for all parties. You can see why for Benson Henderson, it was kind of a, a gutsy move, but also a smart move to say, hey, you know what? I'm going to fight out this contract and see whatever free agency may bring. And to go out on a two-fight win streak like that puts him in a pretty good position. And why wouldn't he try for something like that? At, at his point, you know, he's the former champion. It's not like he has a real clear, obvious path back to the title or like the UFC even seems terribly interested in pushing him in that direction. They just seem to kind of use him as the free TV headliner guy or fight pass headliner guy. Uh, and, you know, he's 32. He, he needs to make a move, make that money while he can. So I can understand why he thinks starting over in Bellator, there's some good fights over there. He happens to be able to fight in two different divisions, and one of which is like the one division where you can make really good fights outside the UFC. Um, makes good sense for Bellator. They need guys like that, and they need guys like that are on an upswing, like not guys who come in there on a losing streak. And the UFC probably feels like, man, we got enough going on at lightweight and to a, a slightly lesser extent at welterweight we don't need to spend a whole bunch of money just to keep Benson Henderson. Yeah, he certainly becomes the highest profile fighter that I think you could stay, you could say, uh, is still in his prime and is still in the process of trending upward as he exits the UFC. I mean, Bellator signed Phil Davis a while back and he's a guy who certainly is still in his prime, but is, is coming off a couple of losses in the UFC and was a guy that you got the impression that when, the UFC declined to to match with Phil Davis. It was just sort of a thing where they they were sending the message that he was a guy that they didn't necessarily want anymore. Um, I think they would gladly have kept Benson Henderson if there wasn't a competing offer out there for him to take. Uh, but he's a guy who definitely goes over to Bellator as a, a a top ten lightweight. You would think if he wants to resume fighting in the hundred and fifty five pound division and a guy who is an instant threat to win the Bellator lightweight title and a guy who, who for the UFC has fought and um, obtained decent ratings fighting on free TV over and over again. Um, and to me, like the signing of Benson Henderson by Bellator is a big deal, not only because of who Benson Henderson is, but because it's a sign of Bellator ever slightly continuing to narrow that, uh, talent gap between Bellator and the UFC. And this seems like a thing that might send a message to other prospective free agents out there where they could look at this and say, hey, look what Benson Henderson did. He got uh, the best deal for himself by going over to Bellator. Maybe uh, I could cash in on some of that. See, that's where I think it's uh, has the most impact is other fighters are going to look at that. And gradually, I think that you're going to erode the mindset that exists with a lot of fighters right now where they think the UFC is the only big show to be in and if you're going to bellator you're being sent down to the bus leagues one way or another that it's a demotion and i think that you know it makes sense the ufc has just been around so much longer it's kind of synonymous with the sport in so many people's minds not a whole lot of kids are coming up hitting heavy bags in gyms right now because they want to be bellator champion as we've talked about in the past but i think when current fighters start to see this happen a little more and they think you know what if he if you fight out your contract and you end up in Bellator, that might be a better financial situation for you, or maybe you fight out your contract and you get into a bit of a bidding war, uh, because the UFC is not just going to let everybody uh, walk over there to Bellator. And I think if fighting out your contract becomes a little bit more of a normal thing for fighters to do, 
then you know it'll stop being such a big deal. It'll stop being something that you're so worried about the UFC punishing you for with bad matchmaking on your way out the door. Uh, and the UFC will have to up some of its financial offers to keep the guys that it wants to hold on to. So I think you know has the ability to raise fighter pay kind of across the board. Um, good for Benson Henderson being willing to stick his neck out there and go try it, though. Next question this week comes to us from Rory Goodman. He writes, seeing that now the faint veil of winning of a winning streak has been lifted and we can all see Ryan Bader for the Ryan Bader he really is. Ouch. Should he just move up to heavyweight? I mean, fuck it, right? Five fight win streak at light heavyweight and you're rewarded with Anthony Johnson's fist damn near caving in your skull. The skill level at heavyweight seems much lower. And if one Ryan Bader wants to get a UFC title, he might want to jump on ahead of Mr. Jones up a weight class and try to get a win before the next title challenger is inevitably injured. It's crazy, but it just might work. Discourse. Uh, so let's just address this Anthony Johnson, Ryan Bader fight a little bit and then maybe we could talk about. Ryan Bader at heavyweight. Uh, we both, not to let people deter too much behind the curtain here in the, at the co-main event podcast, but we talked about what we should spend our rounds talking about today. And while we acknowledge that, that Anthony Johnson's win over Ryan Bader is probably a bigger deal in the landscape of the UFC, it feels like a thing that we have not, not a lot to say about. Yeah. We have more to say about Sage Northcutt, but uh, definitely it was a thing that happened. Yeah, the I mean, the only thing that I think Anthony Johnson's win over Ryan Bader reminds us is that Anthony Johnson is a terrifying and ferocious contender for the UFC light heavyweight title. Uh, and it seems like he could either win or lose any fight because he brings that tremendous punching power to the table. Uh, and I went back and watched a little bit of his fight with, with Daniel Cormier today just to refresh my memory about that. And it is kind of a miracle. Yeah. That DC did not get slept right at the beginning of that fight when Anthony Johnson hits him, uh, because he gets hit hard. And maybe the most impressive thing that happens earlier in that fight is that, well, in a complete, uh, technique altering panic, Daniel Cormier does pop up from the mat looking unhurt for the most part after he gets just completely destroyed by that Anthony Johnson right hand. Uh, so yeah, he, Anthony Johnson is a guy who has that power. And at the same time, I'm not sure that anyone would forecast him beating Daniel Cormier in a rematch. And I'm not sure anyone would forecast him beating John Jones. Yeah. That was kind of my take on the post fight column. I wrote was that this kind of tells us exactly what we already knew about Anthony Johnson was that if you go out there and you fuck up against Anthony Johnson, he will make you pay. He has that ability. And you know, Ryan Bader, I think, might want to rethink that or is probably in the coming days going to rethink that strategy of just shooting on a takedown right away without trying to do any kind of setup, just like he did not want to stand there for a single solitary second with Anthony Johnson, which ended up just playing right into his hands. Uh, and I think we kind of knew that about Anthony Johnson. He's a good fighter, hits hard, and if you go out there and you do one thing wrong, uh, he can hurt you bad. But I am no more inclined to think that he beats Daniel Cormier if they fight again. Uh, or that he beats John Jones. I mean, he always has that, that puncher's chance that we talk about. And he actually has the real puncher's chance, not the puncher's chance that promoters talk about when they want to sell you on a complete mismatch. Like, he actually does have the real phenomenon of the puncher's chance in any fight he's in. But I don't see him becoming champ. And I still think uh, he's just impossible to root for, uh, just because of his past with domestic violence and his kind of uh, unrepented attitude about it. Uh, even in, when we, we talked a little bit in the Breakfast of Champions, that Lance Pugmire article from the LA Times, uh, which basically 
tries to advance the argument that what do you expect from a pro fighter? Some of the nastiness, the quote nastiness that he shows in the cage is going to bleed over into his interactions with people, uh, which is just a terrible argument to put forth. And some of Anthony Johnson's quotes in that, and he continues to kind of play that same uh, approach like, hey, I'm just going to be me, and, and I don't care what all the haters say. And it's like, yeah, that's cool if the haters are, like, talking about you being a dick on Instagram or something. But if they're talking about you beating women, then that's probably some, some haters that you should you should pay attention to. Is it crazy for me to suggest that I feel like Anthony Johnson might have a better shot against John Jones than he would against Daniel Cormier? Just because my sense of it is that John Jones, a returning John Jones, stylistically will consider the idea of trying to test Rumble Johnson's stand-up. Because that's okay. what John Jones kind of does. See, this is what I was going to ask when you started making this point is, is it because you think that he matches up better against John Jones or because you think John Jones is the type of dude who is more inclined to fuck around when he shouldn't? That DC will know, hey, I got I to gotta make this my kind of fight, whereas John Jones will think, well, I'm the best fighter in the goddamn world, so let's go ahead and make it your kind of fight and I'll beat you there. Yes, mostly the latter. And although I would add as an addendum to that, that, that John Jones does not seem... uh scared to get hit in the face no like we have seen him get hit in the face before uh and like by another dude glover, glover Teixeira, who had the puncher's chance yeah it, i just feel like if 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 it came to pass that there was a rumble johnson dc rematch that cormier would be like all right we've been down this road before as he said he admitted it on on the fox pregame show this last weekend that had that uh, Rumble Johnson quote made him go flying across the ring when he hit him. I think that Daniel Cormier would be like, "What's the smartest way to do this fight?" And then would come out there and do that. I think John Jones would come out and be like, "All right, let's see what this motherfucker has." Right, which yeah. could get you in trouble against Rumble Johnson. I, I mean, if I had if I had to pick a winner, I would probably take Cormier and Jones against Anthony Johnson. But at the same time, I feel like Jones might might feel a little bit more like playful or have a have a chip on his shoulder almost about it in a way that could get him into trouble. Yeah, and maybe that would be the best way the UFC could try to sell that fight is, hey, maybe John Jones will screw around too much. <laughs> uh, let's talk a little bit about this idea of Ryan Bader moving up to heavyweight. Uh, now, we see this get floated around a lot about a lot of guys in the I'm light sure heavyweight division. It floated around about Ryan Bader. It's, it's kind of interesting about Ryan Bader because, like, as you, I'm sure, know, if you ever see Ryan Bader in person, he is an enormous man. He is just a, a hulking beast of a person. Uh, and you know what? He might have some success at heavyweight where it seems like maybe the overall skill level would be a little bit lower. But I also think the downside for Ryan Bader is articulated in this email. And that is, uh, even if you go up to heavyweight, John Jones has just publicly said he's coming. <laughs> or, I mean, come on. I think that the problem is that Ryan Bader's style does not translate well to being one of the smaller fighters at heavyweight. I think he relies too much on being able to take people down and kind of grind away on them. Uh, that's what we've seen uh, a lot from him in the, what, what is it referred to as the faint veil of a winning streak that he had before this fight. Uh, and I don't know if you're going to be able to do that to too many of those big dudes up at heavyweight. And, you know, he has some, has some power in his hands he can hit, but I don't know if that is going to knock out a whole bunch of heavyweights. I mean, imagine you put Ryan Bader in there against Ben Rothwell, uh, doesn't that feel like the kind of fight where the commission, even even like the Nevada State Athletic Commission, would be like, I don't know about this one, guys. I don't know if we want to sanction this one. I don't know that. I don't think you would have trouble getting it sanctioned, but I think it would be it would be trouble for Ryan Bader to have to to fight a guy that's big. Um, let's move on with this question from Stephanie Silva because it's kind of related. She writes, 
with John Jones proclaiming he only has three fights left at light heavyweight, and the is this heavyweight logjam almost a moot point? More than likely, Jones will pull, then it says parenthetically, rightfully, a McGregor and get the heavyweight title shot as soon as he wants it. And considering how uh, infrequently the heavyweight strap is on the line, are we uh, are we much to doing about nothing with our four current title contenders? Now, we'll talk about the heavyweight title picture more in round number two this week uh, because it's interesting what's happening with Ben Rothwell and, and Stipe Miocic and... Uh, Cain Velasquez and Fabricio Verdum right now. But John Jones also announced on, I think, Twitter this week, he feels like he has three light heavyweight fights left. He wants to fight DC again. He wants to fight Rumble Johnson. He wants to fight Alexander Gustafson. And then, like he said at the beginning of the year in his interview with Ariel Helwani, he's intent on going up to heavyweight. Now, I want to ask you this question, similar to Ryan Bader's style not playing well at heavyweight, is it is that the most interesting thing about the the future career of John Jones to see if he can go up to heavyweight and fight dudes who are as big as Ben Rothwell and see if his particular skill set can play in that division. Yeah, I think that that's what we're headed towards, and that's something that I think everybody has been wondering about for a little while, especially now that he seems to be bulking up uh, with his extended layoff from active mixed martial arts competition. I think people see that potential now and think, okay, not only does he seem like a dude who's going to go up to heavyweight eventually? He seems like a dude who's going to go up to heavyweight and look every bit like a heavyweight when he gets there, not like a dude who is coming up from another weight class. It seems like by the time he's ready for that, uh, he's going to look like he belongs with those dudes as far as getting off the bus, as you like to say. The question about is, are we just wasting our time even talking about all the other possible contenders at heavyweight? I would say yes, but we're going to do it anyway. It's the same thing that's going on at lightweight. It, it really is comparable in a lot of ways to that McGregor situation. Because the minute he goes up, you know he'll get the title shot. But he has a few things to do. Who knows how long that could take? Who knows if we might face any other uh, roadblocks in the way to getting there? The way we've already faced a little bit with John Jones. So you might as well go along with your, your ordinary course of business at heavyweight uh, and start sorting through some of these contenders and figure out who's next and who's after that, all that kind of interesting stuff. Um, but they should all know. And I think that everybody kind of knows uh, in the heavyweight division, but in every division, that whoever they say this person is getting the next title shot, it doesn't mean a damn thing. All this stuff about who's in what position right now, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything until you're in there, actually in the cage with the other dude who has the belt. Uh, then you can start uh, worrying about how that stuff is going to go until that. Like when I was talking to Ben Rothwell not too long ago, when Stipe or when, uh, yeah, when Stipe was announced as getting the next title shot and then he's pegged to be the replacement and everything. And, uh, I traded text with Ben Rothwell kind of asking like, Hey, are you, are you bummed about this? Do you think it's kind of a raw deal, how it's all working out? And his response was basically, dude, I'm not worried about it because who the hell knows what, how it's going to actually turn out in the end and he's right look how it's turned out right now right and that's the thing that's why we kind of have to talk about the heavyweight uh title picture just not only because until john jones gets there this is the reality we have but the damn division is so uh chaotic that anything could happen like if we found out that kane velasquez and stipe miocic and alistair overeem and ben rothwell were all in a compact car together that got in a car wreck and they were all injured and the next title shot had to go to Travis Brown, we would all be kind of be like, eh, yeah, okay. I mean, that, this heavyweight, that kind of stuff happens. So, compact cars run off the road all the time. Just all five of those guys crammed into a Ford Focus or whatever. Um, 
I have to admit, I've always been, I don't know if you want to say on the side, but I always knew that when John Jones came back from the suspension, he would view getting that light heavyweight title back from Daniel Cormier and probably fighting Rumble Johnson as unfinished business in that division. But ever since the recent chaos of UFC 196, and it was floated out there, like however briefly, that John Jones could fight Stipe. He floated it. For the... uh for the interim heavyweight title, or I guess he said he would do it if it was for the real title. I've been kind of obsessed with that idea now. And I kind of feel like if he's going to heavyweight, maybe just go. Because the light heavyweight division seems like it's in somewhat better hands now with, with DC as champion than maybe we thought it was going to be when John Jones left, even though the, the buy rates for his fights have not really been up to snuff. It doesn't seem like the light heavyweight division would just dry up and blow away without John Jones. And every picture that we see of John Jones, he appears to get beastlier and beastlier by the moment. So at this point, I'm kind of, frankly, maybe not going to, I mean, I'll watch all those other fights and they'll probably be awesome, but I'm not going to feel kind of satisfied until we get to see him fight these other creatures. How about this? We've talked about this as being very similar to the Conor McGregor situation. Uh, maybe Conor McGregor lays the blueprint for how to be a two-division champion, and John Jones says, you know what? You let Conor McGregor go up and challenge for another belt without having to give up his belt, uh, and you said you'd let him try to defend both of them at the same time. Why can't your boy John Jones do the same thing? Don't even have to give up the belt. Go up there to heavyweight, get them both, and then uh, see how long you can ride that train until the UFC gets mad and takes one of them from you. Yeah, I thought about that. And I think that that is an interesting uh, potential outcome here. Although, if you're the UFC, you gotta you got to put a stop to that eventually. Because you can't have eight men's weight divisions and two champions, right? Because that just the math just doesn't work out. You need to have as many of those belts operational as you can possibly have and conor mcgregor kind of seems like he is willing to try to do it fight once every four months uh john jones has never really kept up that that level of of activity he technically typically fights twice a year you know when he doesn't t-bone a pregnant lady and has to spend eight six to eight months on the sidelines so i don't know that jones could be active enough and if you're not going to be that active like if you're the ufc you just can't you can't really have that happen right no, I and but it would be a fun way for him to screw with the UFC if he were so inclined. Maybe, maybe he'll maybe sign with McGregor like Promotions would, and then <laughs> there you go. all bets will be off. You never know. Um, all right, this question from Josiah in Jacksonville writes, So is it time to close the book not only on Jake Ellenberger, the welterweight contender, but also Jake Ellenberger, the UFC-level fighter? After see, seeing so many seemingly washed-up fighters find late success, it can be tough to count anyone out, but Ellenberger's only won one of his last six fights, and that was to uh, Josh Koscheck, who might be fighting Dada 5000 in the future if Bellator continues to Bellator. Woodwatch. Woodwatch. Ellenberger's fall has been precipitous, and while he might have his moments, it's hard to see him beating anyone inside the top 15 moving forward. What do you think caused his fall from relevancy, and do you think the... Uh, this could have more to do with the mental game than anything physical. Discuss, please, and thank you. Um, it does kind of feel like Jake Ellenberger has fallen off the map in terms of like the competitive balance of the UFC. Uh, and it does seem like somewhere along the line he encountered, uh, I don't, you know, mental breakdown is not the way to say it, but like, uh, you know, he's he's one and five now in his last six fights, and it seems like at some point 
Uh, maybe he got the yips, like they say about golfers, and kind of had to go change camps a couple times, was looking for answers, and it just doesn't ever really feel like he put it back together after yeah, that started. You know, he's talked about that a little bit. I've talked to him about it uh, not so long ago, about just kind of dealing with some of the mental game stuff, especially, I think, going into a little bit of a slide, I think that maybe he's one of those fighters where um, when things aren't going well, that's when things just go worse kind of thing. Uh, and so this current one in five stretch that he's on, I mean, for one thing, let's put it into context that it's not like he's going out there and losing against Bums. I mean, Tarek Safadine looked good in this fight, um, looked better than he has in a little while, and uh, it was still a fairly close fight. Um, before that, he got knocked out by Stephen Thompson, the Wonder Boy. Um, he beat J- Josh Koscheck, choked him out. Uh, and then before that was that pretty surprising uh, first-round loss to Kelvin Gastelum, where Gastelum kind of dominated him there and then uh, uh, jumped on him and, and got him in the rear naked choke. But before that was a, a TKO to Robbie Lawler, current UFC welterweight champion Robbie Lawler. I've be- heard of him. And before that, a decision against Rory McDonald, the, the, the Red King, as you know, who just recently had that uh, really awesome, really close fight with Robbie Lawler. So it's not like he was losing to a bunch of bums. I, I do think, though, that maybe... Um, Fighting some of those tough guys sent him off a, a bad track momentum-wise. Um, and it seemed like against Tarek Safadine, what he was struggling from is just trying to uh, find his rhythm and, and, and let loose. He could just And Safadine has a good style for kind of nullifying you and, and disrupting your timing and everything. Um, but it's not like he's getting blown away. Like, I think it's a little too soon to just say he's not a UFC-level fighter. And it's not like he's super old or anything. I mean, he has like 40 pro fights, but he's only 30 years old. Um I, I understand where the, the sentiment is coming from, but I don't know if you should be just shoveling dirt on Jake Ellenberger just yet. Yeah, it certainly is a stark contrast between the first half of his UFC career and the second half of his UFC career. I remember when he debuted in 2009 and he had a not that awesome fight with Carlos Condit, which he ended up losing by, by split decision. But I think just watching that fight, you got the impression that Jake Ellenberger was going to be a, a known guy in the welterweight division and was going to be somebody who was going to be able to, to make some noise. And then he starts his UFC career six and two overall. Uh, and kind of caps it with that KO of Nate Marquardt at UFC 158. He ended up winning knockout of the night. And then after that, the, the slide sort of began. And you're right to say that, that you can't really hold some of these losses against him when he's going out there losing to, uh, Rory McDonald, Robbie Lawler, and Kelvin Gastelum right in a row. Uh, it does feel like at this time, at this point though, like he needs to, to, to figure something out. You're right to say, I don't think we want to shovel dirt on the guy. He's only 30 years old and he certainly could make a comeback if that's what he wants to do. Uh, but he's in a, which you have to assume is a pretty dark spot right now at one in five and in, in his last half dozen UFC fights. So, um, the other thing I would say about Jake Ellenberg, he's always seemed like a good dude. Every yeah. time I've talked to him, seemed like a, a good guy. It is the kind of guy that you hope if the, if what he wants to do is, is continue on, you hope that he can put it back together and find some more success. Yeah. And also seems like a really smart guy and smart enough, I think, to have recognized that, whatever the psychological stuff that he was dealing with that, that he needed to address that and work with that rather than you see some of those guys who just try to go into this hole of denial and pretend like it's not affecting them. And he is, has confronted it and tried to deal with it. Uh, but in today's UFC right now, that one in five stretch looks like really cuttable territory. And it would make you wonder what would he decide to do at 30 years old if he got cut from the UFC? You know, is that where you think like, hey, I'll find a fresh life over there in Bellator. Everybody's doing it kind of thing. Or maybe move on and do something else. I mean, 
he's he's a smart dude, a good dude, like you said. So uh, I I hope that whatever he does is what he actually wants to be doing. Well, that's going to do it for this week's listener mail. If you have questions, comments, or concerns to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You can go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says Email the Podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that you miss. Uh, from from Tuesday to Friday when we're not recording the podcast. It's short. It's humorous. We think you'll like it. If you don't like it, it's super easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Well, Ben, I don't know if this will surprise anyone, and I don't know if it's just a situation uh, of our listeners trying to outgame the co-main event podcast, but we got far and away more listener mail this week about Sage Northcutt's loss to Vinnie Barbarino than uh, <laughs> any other topic in the mixed martial arts world by far. It wasn't even close. This was the kind of thing where I had to go on Twitter and be like, hey, if you guys have non-Sage Northcut questions, send them <laughs> to us because you have a good chance to get on the show. Um, and I, I want to get into talking about all things Sage Monroe Northcut, uh, including the backlash against him, including the nature of the loss. Uh, but I guess first, there's been a lot of talk about whether or not he even deserved to be in the UFC, etc., etc. Are you surprised that we would get more emails about Sage Northcutt than we would about, say, Ben Rothwell or Anthony Johnson or any other topic this week? I'm not surprised, especially after the way the fight played out. And we have to admit that the part of the Sage Northcutt hype that is true is the part about him, for one reason or another, in some way or another, capturing the imaginations of the MMA world. People love to talk about Sage Northcutt. They And he, in so many ways, offers like this really interesting test case for MMA right now because he seems like so obviously a person that the UFC has seized on and said, this guy, we can make this guy a star. He has the right look and and he has at least some of the right skills that we want. And he seems like he is a company guy to the point of being borderline brown noser which the UFC really loves, we can work with this. We can really make something out of this. But they're doing it so transparently that it causes a reaction from people. People realize that this is a marketing job, and that then becomes like part of the story that we're all watching unfold. And so it has a lot of elements that I think make people really interested. And then when you go out there and you have a fight like that one where it's kind of the first time we've ever seen him put in a tough spot, and it looked like he quit. It, you know, he, he got caught in that choke that from a position where you shouldn't really get caught in that choke and he did not really set up much of a defense. It looked like he like, you know, and you see a lot of fighters making that accusation, especially the ones who had before when seeing what he was getting paid, uh, got a little angry about it. And they say, look, the first time this guy gets put in a tough spot where things aren't going his way, he quits. Um, and I can understand why people would have a lot of strong reactions to that. The interesting thing to me is the reactions to the reactions. I've seen it a lot all over the place, and I've seen it from several different MMA media members 
this kind of like coddling in a way. Like like Sage Northcutt is a baby bird who must be protected inside the nest. Guys, he's only 19. He's right. only 19. Why would these people be so mean to a 19-year-old kid who's just, he's so nice and he's just out there trying to have a good time and make 40 grand to show up when a bunch of other dudes are making you know, literally half that even after being in the USA improving themselves for a little while? Why would everybody be so mean to this guy? Uh, and that seems like the weirdest part to me. Like it's this weird paternalistic kind of protectiveness of Sage Northcutt that people didn't seem to have about other fighters. You know, the people who were all about it when Rousey was getting memed into a dark, dark, depressive hole after getting knocked out by Holly Holm. Now some fighters want to jump up, get on Twitter, and call Sage Northcutt a pussy, and they are just appalled. Cannot believe that people would be so mean to one another. Yeah, I mean, I think even subconsciously for a lot of people, one of the reasons that sports are popular is that sports can be an extension of life, right? And especially in fighting, like clearly mixed martial arts is a controlled and uh, uh, slightly antiseptic arena in which to stage humankind's oldest form of conflict resolution, right? And likely oldest form of athletics. But the reason that a lot of this stuff is popular, including professional fighting, is that we project life shit onto it, right? That's the kind of the thing with sports. And in life... When we see people getting stuff that we don't think deserves it, we don't like that. Like yeah. That makes that person extremely hateable, especially when that person is a gelled up, blonde haired. I don't know if Sage Northcutt has blue eyed, but I'll say blue eyed uh, white kid <laughs> with a gleaming smile who seems to have like coasted in on his hoverboard and gotten a free ride like that dude pisses us off if he works at our job and he pisses us off if he's on our TVs. So to me. The backlash of Sage Northcutt, not only because there's a certain segment of the mixed martial arts population that will always cheer against the guy that we regard as the company's chosen person, uh, and I think a lot of those people are listening to the show right now, uh, but also because like that's what we want to see happen in life to people that we believe have gotten a free ride that they didn't deserve. Yeah. And so like that's that to me is the backlash. It doesn't necessarily have anything to do with being mean to Sage Northcutt whether or not he deserves that is another question entirely. Uh but it's ju it's just like you know that's the plot line that we want to have happen in life and it did. Well, and it seems like you could see how from the perspective of a lot of these other fighters um, especially guys who have been in the UFC, you know, before Sage Northcutt, it's like, you know, you're working at a job and the boss's nephew, uh, gets hired and immediately gets a higher salary than the one you've gotten. He hasn't done anything. He hasn't really proved that he knows the business or anything. Uh, he's, he gets the corner office right away, just slides in there right out of, you know, some, some finishing school, uh, and getting opportunities that, you don't get that you haven't been given, uh, even after working here longer than he has. Then he goes out there after everybody kind of mumbling behind his back about the, the nepotism favoring him. And he has his first big presentation and he falls on his face. Of course, everybody's going to meet at the, at Cubby Swanson's for happy hour and yuck it up about that one. They're going to enjoy that. And you can understand why they would. And that's how it seems to a lot of those fighters, especially because, uh, they're, they're looking at it going like, 
wait a minute, you just kind of decided that this guy was going to be big. You gave him favorable matchups. You kept telling everybody what a star he is. And then he goes in there and when he gets in a tough situation, he doesn't seem up to it. And, you know, I can understand the people saying, hey, look, he's young. He still uh, has a long way to go as far as development wise. Maybe this will be just like a building block kind of moment. And I get that. And I, and I don't disagree with any of that. I mean, I don't think that just because you tapped out to this uh, choke means that you're a shitty fighter and that you, you'll never go anywhere. Like, I can see how that would be a real character building moment. He, he could uh, become much better for it. But I also think that there, you can't have it both ways. You can't tell us this dude is a star and he is a great fighter. And then when he goes out there and he looks like not such a great fighter, say, well, hey, what do you expect? He's not there yet. You're paying him like he's there. You're pushing him like he's there. He's fighting on Fox. Uh, and he's fighting in these fights where we all know who the UFC wants to see win. So you can't then come out of that and say, like, well, hey, he deserves to be held to a lower standard uh, because he's young or because he's he's not experienced yet or, or whatever. I mean, if he's there, then, you know, he, you got to play like you're there. You got to you got to take the, the criticism that comes with being there. Uh, and I think that, you know, that's the, the part that I don't quite understand about the the backlash to the backlash, if you will. Right. No, I agree with you. And I think that if anything, there is a new. UFC promotional tactic, I don't know promotional tactic, but certainly like a new UFC signing tactic at work, uh, where they're bringing in guys like Sage Northcutt and they're bringing in, you know, uh, CM Punk and the two guys who are going to fight, one of whom may get to fight CM Punk, depending on how that fight goes. And they have looking for a fight, the Dana White, uh, reality show on the fight pass where they're going out and seemingly to restaurants specific. Well, that too. Okay. Also going to eat a lot of good food. Uh, but also like seemingly specifically to find inexperienced young fighters that might have star power. And so, you know, when Sage Northcutt goes out there and taps out to a, what appears to be an early 2000s tap out by a guy who may or may not have ever been in that position before, that's at least that's how it appeared to the, to the casual observer. Uh, it kind of makes sense. Like he is a 19 year old kid who only had seven fights before this. And the first, he had never fought outside Texas or Louisiana prior to, uh, his two UFC fights in, in Newark and Las Vegas. Uh, and that's what he looked like. And that's what happened to him. And clearly he's an athletic dude who has an awesome striking base and needs to branch out and train more on the ground. And to me, none of that is really surprising and or like revelatory about that. The real problem might be that the UFC in typical fashion, can think of no other way to promote people than this guy is the greatest thing since sliced bread, right? When, like, we we can all see that they're bringing in these kind of, like, green and inexperienced fighters for one reason or another. I still don't totally know what that reason is, but uh, it just seems like they're sending that message, right? Like, we all know Sage Northcutt is not a proven or experienced fighter, but the UFC is sending us this message that he's the next big thing in 155 pounds. Right, and when they're also doing the kind of Fox News... Uh echo chamber thing about it is they're creating a lot of hype about him and talking about him and pushing him a lot and then the thing that they'll say when they get on there on the broadcast is a lot of people are talking about this sage Northcutt. you you are the ones talking about him we're talking about why you're talking about him so much uh and it creates this kind of snowball effect i do think though that uh he he has become like a legitimate topic of interest for a lot of people and now it's a really fascinating thing to watch uh, and it will be for a while. And that's why people keep sending those emails. Uh, a, a technical note about you mentioned like a guy who didn't seem like he'd ever been in that position before. Some of it seemed to me like when he's being held down there and being beaten up and, and roughed up uh, in the second round of a fight, uh, 
just in general and in, in places where he's not used to being. And you can kind of see it on his face even before that, that choke happens that it's not going the way he thought it would. And he's not too happy about being here anymore. Uh, and when he gets, you know, Barbarina's in, in half guard, um, but he's up kind of high in half guard. Sage Northcourt is not really doing anything with his half guard. You can see how it's kind of the same problem that plagues his normal ground game where his idea is just like, I'll just hold on. Sometimes he doesn't even close up the guard. Uh, just kind of hold on and wait for a stand up. And when you try to do that with half guard, it'll often only gets worse. But when he gets put in that position and I went back and I watched, uh, I think it was Rick Story and Brian Foster, the one everybody talks about where I think it was Rick Story who, uh, got an arm triangle choke on Brian Foster uh, from inside his closed guard. And everybody was like, well, hey, if that can happen. And I went back and watched that one. And that's another one where he gets his hips up high. His hips are basically out of the guard. Uh, and he gets the arm triangle on. And he's But he's got his body off to the right side to finish it. And you can see uh, the other dude, I believe it was Brian Foster. I'm not totally sure. He's doing the right things. He's trying to do a defense. He's trying to push his arm down, trying to create some space. It's clear that he has some idea how to get out of the arm triangle choke. And he just... It doesn't work, and he can't really think of anything else to do there in time. And with Sage Northcutt, it's different. Like, the thing he does when he gets caught in that arm triangle is to reach up with his free hand and kind of try to wedge some space between his his neck, between his artery there, and his shoulder, which being, is what's being used to create the, the choke on that side, which is what you would do if you went into jiu-jitsu class and somebody put an arm triangle choke on you and you didn't know any of the escapes for it it feels like what you should do but it doesn't really do anything for you and then when that didn't work then he punched him twice in the body as if to say like oh maybe he'll just like he'll say ow and he'll let go and then he tapped uh and that to me it seems just like that's inexperience just not knowing that you had more options there not knowing what the defense was and just kind of showing like he's kind of being thrown in there uh when he does not have that that knowledge that you should have at this level uh, and again, that's not that's not saying that he's a pussy. Like some uh, several fighters I saw went ahead and accused him of being. It's not saying he'll never amount to anything, but it is saying that at least right now he's not where you're supposed to be to be a UFC fighter fighting on Fox. Right. He comes out after the fight today on on the Fortnite and says that he had strep throat. Uh, strep throat does suck. We've all had it before. Uh, but I think it falls fairly chiefly in the category of if you're sick, don't fight. And if you fight, don't tell, and if you fight, don't tell us you were sick later, right? Like that to me, that's, that's all it says. I don't know that a guy who has strep throat should fight. I don't know if the promoter should let him fight. I don't know if the athletic commission should let him fight. Uh, but he did fight and he lost. And that's kind of the. Well, and it's not like he, he lost because he was just slowing down so heavily because he was super sick. He lost because he went and he threw that punch and he missed and he fell down and tried to kind of throw like a spinning kick as he went down. And then once he was down, he couldn't really do much to get back up, uh, which is kind of a hole we've seen in his game, uh, in the last fight. So I don't, I don't know how much you can really attribute that to the strep throat unless you want to say like arm triangles are worse on a strep throat. And they might be, Chad. I don't know. I've never been putting one when I had a strep throat. You know why? Because when I had a strep throat, I stayed home. That's right. Uh, he films the, the, I don't know if it was an Instagram video or a Vine today. We don't have much time left. But this, to me, was the first sign that maybe Sage Northcutt is a little bit in on the joke. I don't know if you read it that way. But in this video, he is first spinning a basketball around on his finger, thanking all of the people for supporting him. Camera pans back to reveal he's on a hoverboard like kind of tooling around on an outside basketball court. And then he takes a basketball shot and bricks it, misses it terribly. Right. 
To me, this the Sage Northcutt doing this and posting this on the internet is a sign that Sage Northcutt kind of knows what the Sage Northcutt thing is, and maybe he's a little bit more uh, self-conscious of it than we might give him credit for. You think so? Yeah, like this. I mean, I felt that as like a purposeful, like poking fun at the Sage Northcutt gimmick of like pointing at things behind the behind him or you know constantly smiling, spinning a basketball, and being on a hoverboard. Come on. Really? Okay. Maybe I just continue to give the guy too much credit. Maybe. I don't know. All right, let's do, uh, what do you want to do? Are you fucking kidding me or tips for well-rounded fight fans? Let's do tips for well-rounded fight fans. All we right. haven't done that in a while. This was your idea. What's your tip this week, Hotshot? Uh, my tip this week is uh, available to anyone who has 16 minutes of free time and Netflix. Uh, have you watched on Netflix the short film World of Tomorrow? I've watched Sophia the First almost every day. <laughs> Well, this is different than that. However, you will also appreciate this one if you have a small child because World of Tomorrow is basically a weird animated short film uh, and it's the basic premise, not to tell you too much about it, is a cl- a woman's clone from hundreds of years in the future coming back to talk to herself as like a toddler child uh, and the You'll be watching it and realize very quickly from the things said and the, the, the tone of voice that it is a real toddler child's voice, uh, very convincingly capturing what it's like to interact with a toddler and try to tell them about real things. Um, but it sounds silly when I describe it and it seems silly when it first starts. And yet I'm going to say oddly moving and touching, uh, and somehow, uh, in 16 minutes makes you, uh, feel what it is to be a human being. World of tomorrow. World of Tomorrow. On the Netflix. My tip for the well-rounded fight fan is also something you can watch on your television with your eyes. Uh, if you haven't already, I would recommend checking out the television series Fargo, the spin-off of the Coen Brothers movie of the same name, which came out like 20 damn years ago at this point. Uh, not only the first season, which is pretty good, uh, but wanders around a little bit, and I ultimately had a couple of problems with it, but also the newly aired second season of Fargo, which is some of the better TV that I've seen in a really long time. Uh, it aired on, on FX Network. I believe you can watch it at the FX app, uh, and it, it is probably available on Amazon Prime as well, um, although you might have to pay some money for the the second season, uh, but just very, very well done, especially the second season, uh, and and worth your time if you like both funny but also crimey stories. And you do. That's and right do. in your wheelhouse. It's right in my wheelhouse, and wheelhouse I did. I don't even know. That's not what wheelhouse means, but I sure I wheelhoused it. Stop it. Up and down. Stop it right now. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Take yourself back in time. Say, take yourself back to a week ago today. Uh huh. Say we were sitting here at this very table, talking into these very microphones, and I told you, you know what? When Ben Rothwell and Josh Barnett go at it in this, this weekend's heavyweight co-main event, what I see happening is Rothwell beating Barnett up on the feet a little bit and then choking him out in the second round. What would you have said to me? I would have not believed you, not only because that was statistically the most 
unlikely outcome of this heavyweight fight, but also because Josh Barnett had never tapped out due to a submission hold uh, or choke before during his MMA career. So not only making history, but also it being accomplished by a guy not necessarily known uh, for his submissions in Ben Rothwell. Uh, although I think we should note at this point that go-go choke, as what he calls it, that Ben Rothwell uses, uh, that's a thing, right? Because this is also the same choke that he got Matt Matrione with. It is. So that's that's his move. Yeah, that's kind of two in a row there. You know, you're pretty close to being in the territory where you can lobby to have that choke named after you. Right. It could, so be the, it could be the Rothwell, although Ben Rothwell uh, gives every impression that he would never do that since it seems like the dude who invented that choke is his jujitsu instructor, or at least popularized it. Uh, and anytime Ben Rothwell talks about it, he makes sure to give mad props to said jujitsu coach. So I don't think uh, Ben Rothwell is the kind of dude who's going to skate in and steal the shine off whoever taught him that choke. He's no Von Flu. No. Right? I see, but... We could, say, just colloquially start referring to that choke as the work of the dark arts. He Rothwelled him. Yeah. He got wheelhoused by Rothwell. <laughs> God damn it. See, this is going to be a verb by the time no. this show is over. Let's hope not. Ben, kind of a subdued performance by Ben Rothwell before and after the fight. During the fight, you kind of got your classic Rothwell going. But we found out later in his interview with Ariel Helwani... That the UFC, that he, that Ben Rothwell was backstage in his cloak and assassin's mask, ready to do the damn thing, and the UFC came and told him he had to take it off. That is bullshit. If Chad. you needed another reason why to to not like the Reebok UFC exclusive outfitting policy, there it is. Yeah, they prevented the Dark Lord. From showing out on Fox. And from doing something to, you know, kind of get himself noticed, set himself apart from the pack. All things you'd want, you'd think that the UFC would want fighters to do. And it's not like he's putting on a Nike sweatshirt over his Reebok stuff. It's not, you know, it's not like, unless he does start selling the, the cloaks on his website, which would be a pretty awesome move. Hashtag would buy. Yeah. Gets yourself an official Rothwell cloak. Uh, so it's not like he's like advertising a competitor. He's just trying to wear his thing. And they tell him, no, that that is a bummer. That is not what we should be doing here when we're trying to promote individual fighters in an individual sport. Yeah, I think Rothwell should wear the cloak to the post-fight interview or post-fight press conference, right? Because, like, they won't if they won't stop you from wearing a suit and tie to the press conference, where is the line, Ben? Where okay. is the line cloak between... Cloak and tie is what you're saying? <laughs> yes. Where's the line between three-piece suit and wizard robe? Like, I don't know, man. I don't see it. Okay. What if that is Ben Rothwell's version of formal wear? Yeah, the same way how, like, in Montana, you can show up in a bolo tie and you're still technically wearing a tie. Yeah, you can wear jeans to a wedding. It's fine. No big deal. <laughs> as long as you got your bolo tie. All right, let's talk about what happens to Ben Rothwell after this fight. He's won four fights in a row now, dating back to August of 2013. Obviously, he had a kind of protracted absence there when uh, the UFC chose to suspend him for nine months after he tested positive for elevated levels of testosterone in the wake of the win over Brandon Vera at UFC 164. That was kind of a weird deal because uh, Rothwell has always said that it resulted from a years-old car wreck that he was in. Uh, and for whatever reason, the Wisconsin State Athletic Commission, I know nothing about them and therefore nothing to I know. You have no idea to know what to expect from them. 
but they didn't suspend him. They yeah, he had a TUE for it. Yeah. So yeah, uh, and, but they said they believed. I, I think that it was an honest mistake, and the UFC suspended him for it. But then again, the UFC had also told him, and this was at a time kind of toward the end of the TUE reign that. They discouraged him, let's say, from even applying for that TUE. Then he went ahead and got it uh, and messed it up a little bit. And the Wisconsin State Athletic Commission said, we'll let you off with a warning. The USC said, we won't. It seemed a, a little bit more like, uh, hey, we told you not to do this in the first place. So after coming back from that suspension, he's won three more fights in a row. Alistair Overeem, Matt Mitrione, and Josh Barnett. Uh, that's a fairly impressive streak there in the heavyweight division. He's certainly must now be considered, if he wasn't already, right up there in the hunt for number one contender status with Stipe Miocic. Uh, Stipe. Stipe. But you do have this situation where Fabricio Verdun and Verdum and Cain Velasquez have both just recently backed out of a fight against each other. It sounds like Velasquez's uh, rehab from his back surgery will be minimal. So I guess if we if we had to guess... I would say the UFC is probably going to try to make Verdum versus Velasquez. So we can and, jump right back in the gym and get a whole new injury is what you're uh, saying? We, you know, knock on wood. Uh, so it, it remains unclear what's going to happen with the, with the number one contender status in this division. There seems to be some sort of like public, uh, conventional wisdom out there that that Stipe Miocic has to be the guy to get the next title shot because he spent 15 minutes with the title shot before Verdum also backed out of UFC 196. But well, I it's not just that. I mean, they, they did tell him after that win over Arlovsky, okay, you got it. Okay, well, we know what that's worth. <laughs> I think right. if you look at, at Rothwell's resume here, he's at least even with Miocic. And if you consider the fact, as Rothwell pointed out in the post-fight, that Miocic pulled out of the fight they were supposed to have, uh, what's the case against making Ben Rothwell be the number one contender? I don't see it, if there is one. I, you know, and honestly, uh, if you ask me which is the more impressive win, the, uh, Miosic knockout over Andre Olavsky or Ben Rothwell in a fight where he was, you know, I would say winning the fight, not running away with it or anything, but winning that fight against Josh Barnett and then choking out a guy who you don't just go in there and choke out. I have to say that's the more impressive one. I mean, I think Andre Arlovsky, he's had a good resurgence and everything, but he has always, you know, had that question about his chin. So I don't know if that, uh, Miosic going out there and starching him necessarily outweighs, uh, Ben Rockwell putting together a really solid performance and then capping it off with a submission over Josh Barnett. Um, although it does seem, does it not, if we're just choosing between those guys, like we're kind of flipping a coin. It does in a way, and it 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 also kind of feels like maybe I'm just projecting here, but like the UFC is not that excited about Ben Rothwell championship contender. Like it would rather have Stipe for whatever reason. Uh, and hey, man, I like Stipe as much as the next guy, but it also seems like we're missing kind of an opportunity with Ben Rothwell here. Like you said, with the cloak, everything it all comes back to the cloak. We're always going to bring it back to, it to the cloak. It always does. Always comes back to the cloak. Uh, but Rothwell has done a lot of work kind of fashioning himself into like the most surprising UFC fan favorite in the last few years. And so like to kind of, you know, just leave him on the vine or to keep serving him up with fights uh, instead of, you know, confirming him as number one contender, I feel like, I don't know, man, I like Miocic, but I also feel like Ben Rothwell is a guy that you want to see treated better. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think it's the rare situation where you have several good options at heavyweight. When the hell does that happen? No, we should just we should just shut it down right now, <laughs> so we can all walk away with good memories. Yeah, no, that's obviously the thing to do. Uh, but let's talk a little bit though before we get too wrapped up with plotting the future of the Dark Lord Ben Rothwell. Uh, 
what do you think happens for Josh Barnett at this point in his career? You know, I I was one of the few people to pick Rothwell in this one and the MMA Junkie one, and I did it mainly because uh, of Barnett's age and kind of hit the infrequency of his fights and the 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 thought that maybe against especially at this age that he against a fellow big guy who can't push around as easily as he could push around some of the smaller heavyweights that he might struggle a little bit. Uh, are you thinking that we might pretty soon realize that we've seen the last last Josh Barnett in the cage? Well, I mean, Josh Barnett has always been a guy who was going to do everything his own way all the time anyway, uh, and a guy who had been known to to take long respites from the sport. He's got a lot of other stuff in his life. Uh, he's a smart enough and talented enough guy that he probably will have other career opportunities. Uh, and I think you got a good sense of what this means to him on social media after the loss, where he didn't seem like he was bummed at all. He was just kind of like, you know what? Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. Congratulations to Ben Rothwell. I'm going to take pictures with my girlfriend in a funny photo booth now. Uh, and I think to Josh Barnett's credit at this point in his career, that's his attitude. I find that to be somewhat admirable from him in his late 30s that uh, it seems like he's doing it at this point just because he likes doing it. And, and this is sort of an integral part of how he views himself. Uh, but I think you're right. You know, anybody who's 38 years old and still fighting is, has got to have a backup plan. And Josh Cornett's the kind of guy who, even if he doesn't have a coherent backup plan, he'll, he'll find other stuff for him to do. Yeah. And maybe that's what makes me more inclined to think that at any moment he may just decide the hell with this, or he may just do the thing where he says, you know what? I'm going to take some time off. And then that time off just becomes longer and longer and longer until we don't see him fight anymore. Yeah. I'm I not sure we would ever get. Like a certainly not a weepy, but even like a, a concrete retirement announcement from Josh Barnett. Yeah, he would just be out driving Mustangs across Japan for the next five years, and and at some point we would all wake up and realize that he's not going to fight again. Right. I also think that there's something that happens, and I've seen it with a couple other fighters around his same age that guys who are around for a different era of MMA and in some ways a more lucrative era, uh, especially back when you could, if you were a guy like Josh Barnett, who a lot of sponsors were interested in. You could make way more than whatever the promoter was paying you just in sponsorships. And now they find themselves in a different era and the landscape's kind of changed right out from under their feet. And they start to perform these calculations and think, wait a minute, it was worth it before when I could kind of leverage my popularity and my, you know, the idea that I'm the kind of dude sponsors really want to pay to be associated with. And now I can't really do that anymore. And it's resulting in a kind of massive pay cut. I think that that enters into a lot of those guys' thinking. I've talked to several fighters who have said, even guys who are retired now, who have said, I wouldn't fight for this. Uh, if that's this was all I could make. Uh, you know, he made, what, five grand uh, for his, his outfitting policy payout? Jesus Christ. Josh Barnett, if you were Josh Barnett's manager and you brought him five grand uh, in sponsorships for a fight, you would be lucky if he only fired you. Yeah. I can see that that kind of stuff playing a role in the decision-making at this point for guys like him. Yeah, me too. I think that that probably plays more of a role than than we will ever really fully know uh, with these guys who, you know, what they do is they fight for money. So, therefore, you would think that that would be a big-time motivating factor or lack thereof. Let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me, Ben, and then we'll move on to round number three. Uh, ben, this week I have to spend or send a special Are You Fucking Kidding Me out to the face that Alex Caceres makes 
when the UFC cameraman falls down right in front of him during his walkout uh, for his undercard fight at UFC on, on Fox 18 this past weekend. There's a video of it online for anybody that hasn't seen it or hasn't seen it. Uh, and it's a quick moment, but uh, basically the cameraman falls down and Caceres makes this face that is like halfway between well, sucks to be you and cool. I've got things to do as he like <laughs> steps around the cameraman while he's already unzipping his, uh, his warm up suit to get into the Al's tire barn prep point or whatever they call it now. Never for a moment does it cross Caceres's mind. Like maybe I should help this guy up or like I should inquire about his well being. And I understand this man's got a fight. He's, he's thinking about other stuff, but still, are you fucking kidding me? I found that hilarious. Fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? Ben, what's your are you fucking kidding me for this week? Well, Chad, I don't know if you saw a week or two ago, I did a story on Mike the Truth Jackson, uh, the guy who's going to fight Mickey Gall. And if Mickey Gall wins, then he fights CM Punk. If Mike Jackson wins, then we don't know what's going to happen. Uh, that strange CM Punk sweepstakes that's going that's going on, that, that fight happens uh, this weekend at the event formerly known as UFC 196. But after talking to Mike Jackson, he's an interesting dude. I, I followed him on Twitter, and I'm glad I did for tweets like this. Quote, I swear my mom just came in here and asked if I wanted to order a pizza. Like I don't have a fight Saturday. Hashtag UFC Vegas. Link to Frank Mirface. Are you fucking kidding me? A, that is probably one of the best uses of Frank Mirface I have seen on the internet. And B, kind of put some stuff in perspective about what we're, what's going on here in this whole CM Punk sweepstakes. Does it not? Yeah, like, guys, guys living with their moms, you mean? But also, the big choice that they're having to make is, do you, do you get in on this pizza <laughs> when you got a fight coming up? Are you fucking kidding me? Now there's something we can relate to, Chad. That's right, whether or not to eat the pizza. You know if you were sitting there, you got a fight coming up, you know you got to cut weight. But I poke my head in and say, Chad, I'm ordering a pizza. Are you in on this? That's when you face some some serious soul searching. Exactly, yes. And another reason why I'm not a professional fighter. Finally, a fighter letting us in on struggles that we can all relate to. Are you fucking kidding me? You fucking kidding me? Well, that's going to do it for round number two. We will be right back with round number three. Well, Ben, UFC 196 is now UFC Fight Night 82, and UFC 197 is now UFC 196. Seen a lot of conniption fits going on online about what's going to happen to UFC 200. Uh, I think we can cover that here in the first minute of the second or the third round of this podcast. Uh, what's going to happen is that UFC 200 will still occur, and it'll probably still occur on the date that the UFC has picked out for it. Because you know they don't want to move that shit. 
Well, and it's not like we're super committed to the accuracy of these numbers, right? Like, there's been more than 200 UFC events. You're just right. talking about the ones that have been given a number. And yes. if you could just take the number away, we can just pull numbers out of nowhere, man. So we assume... Which is going to come in handy for UFC 209 in the Stockton uh, arena. That's right. We assume that they're going to sneak another pay-per-view event in before UFC 200. But I'm thinking we just roll with it, and then we go ahead and throw UFC 199 on after it. So we okay. go UFC 200, then UFC 199. I can dig it. Maybe we just start counting backwards from there. Yeah. I don't know. UFC T2000 is going to be a whole lot of fun right after that. The main event of this thing, which actually shapes up now as a pretty good Fox Sports 1 free card, Ben, is going to be uh, former champion Johnny Hendricks against Stephen Wonderboy Thompson. Uh, th- this should be a fun fight to watch, right? Uh, although I got to think that even though he's coming in with uh, – Five straight UFC victories, the last two over Patrick Cote and Jake Ellenberger, and a win over Robert Whitaker, frankly, back before that, which is also impressive. This seems like kind of a a precipitous step up for the Wonder Boy. Yeah, this is a tough one for him, uh, just style-wise and everything else. Uh, You know, he's a really fun fighter to watch and an exciting guy, Uh, but I was looking at the betting odds for this one, and I was a little surprised to see just how heavily favored Johnny Hendricks is in this one. Have you have you looked at the betting odds here? I have not. Uh, well, it looks like maybe it's narrowed a little bit since the last time I looked at it. But Johnny Hendricks going off at a little more than a two to one favorite over over the Wonder Boy. Uh, I mean, could Stephen Thompson throw out there one of his crazy spinning kicks and catch Johnny Hendricks upside his head until he is waking up on the floor saying, "Oh man, yeah." That's absolutely possible. Uh, or it's possible he can just get taken down and mauled or hit with that big left hand. Uh, so I don't, I mean, I think it's a more interesting fight than we would have otherwise considered if it hadn't been placed in this position that it's in. Uh, but I also think this, if you're going to really make something of yourself as Stephen Thompson, this is the chance. Or if you're going to find out that you're not there yet, this is also the chance. Yeah. I mean, if, if Stephen Thompson goes out there and does one of those spinning kicks and, and hits, Johnny Hendricks in the head with his heel and Johnny Hendricks stumbles around and takes a minute to decide that he's knocked out like Jake Ellenberger did. That would be amazing for Stephen Thompson and would totally uh, like make his bones in the UFC welterweight division for sure. Uh, meanwhile, this is one if you're Johnny Hendricks, like you can't really afford to lose this one to the Wonder Boy. You don't want if you're Johnny Hendricks. I don't know how you go home and and face your friends if you've lost to the Wonder Boy. Well, especially with the place he's at right now with the UFC. You know, after all the weight cutting woes and everything, uh, you do not want to go from your steakhouse shutting down to getting kicked upside your head by the Wonder Boy. Uh, after all that that trouble making weight and uh, messing up planned uh, fights and all that stuff. It just, that will be a, a bad series of events just in the life and career of one Johnny Hendricks. And I, I don't know what it would say about his Baja truck racing career. Uh, by the way, best overall line about the closure of big rig steakhouse came from Ben Askren on Twitter when somebody asked him what he thought about it. And his response was, you can't get high on your own supply. Oh man. It is a damn crime that Ben Askren is off fighting in Singapore or wherever and we can't have this man just as a regular fixture in the UFC or someplace here stateside. It's oh, a, it's criminal, Chad. I agree with you. Maybe he can ghostwrite for somebody else. Uh, we were just talking about this before we started recording this round. Uh, I just noticed this when I looked at the, uh, at this fight night card. You just noticed it a couple minutes ago. The co-main event of this is now Roy Nelson versus Jared Rocholt. Oh, man. That has the potential to be brutal. Round 
11 o'clock at night on Saturday. Yes, does it, it not? does, because we're already talking about one, two, three, four, five, six, six fights on the main card of this thing. Uh, and we're going to be sitting through Ovin St. Prue versus Rafael Cavalcante right before that. And if Roy Nelson doesn't knock out Jared Rochalt right away, we could be headed for a long haul of somebody getting pushed up against the fence. Yeah. In this, in this bad boy. And just based on Jared Rochalt's track record, it would not be at all unbelievable to think that Roy Nelson could still win by knockout, but that Jared Rochalt might make him wait until like the 14th minute to do it, uh, which is just, all the, the potential to be one of those excruciating heavyweight bouts, even if it does end by a stoppage. So that'll be an interesting one. Uh, we, I also notice on the main card of this, we've got Misha Kirkunov against Alex Nicholson, two uh, light heavyweights without Wikipedia pages, fighting on the, the main card of what was going to be a pay-per-view. I assume maybe they would have been part of the preliminaries of that if we were still going to do that. Uh but this has the potential to be kind of a long slog on Fox Sports 1, but clearly the best move for the UFC to move this off pay-per-view and, and, and put it on free TV, uh, where it shapes up as, as an entertaining night, if nothing else. Yeah, well, and also I, I saw people kind of complaining about, oh, you know, you aren't you supposed to have a big blockbuster event on Super Bowl weekend? And I don't really think it's such a bad thing, given the circumstances, to have a... Uh, a card on cable TV on Super Bowl weekend, especially you're trying to convince all these people to pay 60 bucks to sit home and watch TV uh, when everybody knows that the big let's gather around the TV for sports holiday in America is the very next day. You could see how they might not be super excited about that. But now that it's on cable TV and it'll be on just in bars wherever you might go on uh, the night before the Super Bowl, I don't know. I think you have the potential to get more eyes on this one and uh, better than losing your your ass in a pay-per-view that nobody wants to buy indeed sir and all those people those increased eyeballs everyone comes away a jared rocholt fan <laughs> once you've seen the magic you can never go back as I'll, they say they'll they'll never forget where they were when they saw jared rocholt do his thing uh what do you what do you think you want to spend any more time talking about this you i assume we both think johnny hendrix probably beats uh stephen thompson I think he does, but I think it has the potential to be an interesting fight. Maybe a closer fight than we think. Yeah, I would like nothing more than to think Stephen Thompson is going to be able to bust out some of his crazy spinning offense in this. At least give the kids at home a show. You know what I bet Stephen Thompson thinks? I bet he thinks, thank God Sage Northcutt is in the UFC now, because now I don't seem like the corny UFC fighter. Now we got that guy. Now I seem edgy. <laughs> yeah. Like he, the edgy wonder boy. Uh, ben, let's do uh, just saying stuff, and then we'll get out of here for this week. What is your just saying stuff for this week? Well, Chad, I don't know if you've seen it, but on MMA Junkie right now, we have a story where Dana White gives a couple of quotes on the Benson Henderson negotiations and how he ended up going to Bellator. Uh, and it includes this quote talking about the contract that the UFC offered Benson Henderson. Quote, the truth is we made him an offer that would have paid him substantially more, like not even in the same ballpark than he's getting now, if he were to become world champion again. But he chose their deal, which offered more up front. Now, I'm just saying, remember how last week I was just saying that sometimes when you think you're talking about what a nice guy you are, you actually end up revealing that you're an asshole uh, in regards to Floyd Mayweather? This is one where I'm just saying... Sometimes you think you're telling us one thing that really justifies your position, but we hear something completely different. For instance, we hear that you're saying if he were to become world champion, he would get substantially more. 
And I'm hearing if, A, the UFC ever consented to give him another title shot, which is entirely in the UFC's control and not his, and then if, B, he would have actually won that title and held on to it long enough uh, to make the money from it. And I'm concluding, C, Benson Henderson made the wise decision by taking the upfront money where he did not have to depend on the whims and the largesse of the UFC. I'm just saying, you basically just made the case for why he should have taken the deal he took. Just saying. Just saying. That does provide, once again, another unintended view into how the UFC might like to structure these contracts. Where it's like, here's here's your offer, but if everything goes unbelievably, stupendously, unexpectedly well for, for you, well, you get a nice payday yeah. at the end of this whole thing. In ways that you cannot control if things fall in your favor. Cha-ching. Well, Ben, I don't know if you've seen this, but the newest dispatch from McGregor Promotions came out today announcing that Conor McGregor has inducted himself into the UFC Hall of Fame. I saw it because about 15 people retweeted it as if they were the first ones to think of that. I guess I'm just saying, if we know that the UFC Hall of Fame is bullshit and most fans, I assume, know that the UFC Hall of Fame is bullshit... And now the guys who might someday even themselves wind up in the UFC Hall of Fame are publicly implying that the UFC Hall of Fame is bullshit. Who are we fooling here? Who at this point is the UFC Hall of Fame for? And I might further just be saying, I feel like that Zufa LLC could save itself a little bit of money by maybe not building that Hall of Fame wing in the extravagant new campus when they get started on actually building that thing. I don't know, man. I'm just saying. Just saying. You know, it'd be a really sweet move is not to induct yourself, but to induct other people. You just decide, you know what? That guy over there, he's doing a bang up job. I'm going to induct him in the hall. Put of him fame. in the hall of fame. See, that's why McGregor promotions could use you as PR strategist. Yeah. What if Conor McGregor comes out saying he has inducted junior Dos Santos into the UFC hall of fame? That's a huge honor. I'm sure Dos Santos would be delighted. Yeah. It would be like that moment uh, after the Cain Velasquez fight when Junior Dos Santos had crossed his, his face and he said, I'm famous. Like he just <laughs> realized that. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We'll be back next week to look back on all the things that happened at the non-UFC 196. And maybe start looking ahead to that next UFC event where the Cowboy is going to fight the Dirty Bird. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. Have we heard back from any Hollywood producers about our Cowboy and the Dirty Bird script? No, I'd say, you know, it's probably still in process. Yeah. I'm sure that everyone is just trying to figure out how much money to offer us. Yeah. They're, they're trying to decide whether this is a green light or a thumbs up situation. That's right. Yeah. So it's, they, they keep putting stacks of money on the table.